0: Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum. The Science and Technology Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Rick Karnesky. I am the host of today's show. This week on Spectrum, we present part one of a two-part interview with our guests Bruce Ames and Rhonda Patrick. Dr. Ames is a Senior Scientist at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute, Director of their Nutrition and Metabolism Center, and a Professor Emeritus of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at UC Berkeley. Rhonda Patrick has a PhD in Biomedical Science. Dr. Patrick is currently a Postdoctoral Fellow at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute in Dr. Ames' lab. She currently conducts clinical trials looking at the effects of micronutrients on metabolism, inflammation, DNA damage, and aging. Here's Brad Swift interviewing Drs. Ames and Patrick.
2: Bruce Ames and Rhonda Patrick, welcome to Spectrum.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Can you help us understand the term micronutrient and briefly explain what they do?
0: Sure. There are about 40 substances you need in your diet, and you get it from eating a really well-balanced diet. Get them all. About 8 or 10 of them are essential amino acids, so they're required for making all your protein. And then there are about 30 vitamins and minerals, roughly 15 minerals and 15 vitamins, so you need... The minerals you need, iron and zinc and calcium and magnesium and all these things you know about. And the vitamins and minerals are coenzymes. So you have 20,000 genes in your body that make proteins, which are enzymes. They do biochemical transformations. And some of them require coenzymes, maybe a quarter of them. So some require magnesium and they don't work unless there's a magnesium attached at a particular place in the enzyme. And some of them require vitamin B6, which is something called paradoxal. It goes through a coenzyme paradoxal phosphate, and that's in a few hundred enzymes. And they make your neurotransmitters and other things. And if you don't get any one of these 40 substances, you die. But how much we need... Is I think there's a lot of guesswork in there. And we have a new idea I can talk about later that shakes all that up a bit.
2: And so in your research, you're trying to measure these micronutrients, obviously.
0: Well, people can measure them in various ways. Some you can just measure in blood and say, ah, you have enough vitamin D, or you don't have enough vitamin D. But some, for example... Calcium and magnesium are in your bones, but they're also used for all kinds of enzymes. And if you get low, the tissue might get low, but you keep your plasma up because you're taking it out of the bone. So just measuring plasma isn't a useful thing in that case. But anyway, uh, each one is a little different.
2: Do you want to talk about the triage theory?
0: Okay. I could talk about that now. Some years ago, we kept on finding when we had human cells in culture or mice, that when we left out various vitamins and minerals or didn't have enough, we got DNA damage. I'm an expert in DNA damage, and we're interested in how to prevent DNA damage because that leads to cancer. And so I kept on wondering, why is nature doing this when you're not getting enough of magnesium or iron or zinc? You're getting DNA damage. And then one day it hit me. Ah, that's just what nature wants to do. Through all of evolution, we've been running out of vitamins and minerals. The minerals aren't spread evenly through the soil. The red soils with a lot of iron, and the soils that have very little iron. Selenium is a required mineral, but there's soils with too much selenium where you get poisoned, and then there are areas where the You don't have enough selenium, so you get poisoned. So it's a little tricky. Back in 2006, I had this idea that nature must do a rationing when you start getting low on any vitamin or mineral. And how would you ration it? The proteins that are essential for survival get it first. And the ones that are preventing some insidious damage that shows up as cancer in 10 years or calcification of the arteries, that's the price you pay because those proteins lose it. And I call this triage. It's a French word for dividing up those wounded soldiers that the doctors can make a difference on. So anyway, I published this with what data there was in the literature, but it wasn't completely satisfactory. We didn't hadn't really nailed it, but it was an idea. And then Joyce McCann in my lab wrote two beautiful reviews, one on selenium and one on vitamin K, and they both fit beautifully. And people who work in these fields had shown that the clotting factors get it first because you don't get your blood clotting and you cut yourself every week or two. You just bleed to death. But the price you pay is you don't make the protein that prevents calcification of the arteries. So people can die of calcification of the arteries, but that takes 10 years. So when nature has to face keeping you alive now so you can reproduce or you're getting calcification arteries in 10 years, it does this Mm trade-off. And also, you don't have enough vitamin K. Mitosis doesn't work quite as accurately, so you lose a chromosome here or there, and you get cancer in 10 years. But again, it's the trade-off between short-term survival and long-term health. It all makes perfect sense. It was a very plausible theory. That's why I came out with it. But it's true for vitamin K, And the mechanism used in vitamin K is different than the mechanism in selenium. So each system has developed a different mechanism for doing this rationing. Mm -hmm. And so that changes our view of vitamins and minerals because you're paying a price every time you're a little low on one of them. So it's the disease of aging. So basically when you're short of any vitamin or mineral, it accelerates your aging in some way. It accelerates some kind of insidious damage And we're talking about huge numbers of people. Seventy percent of the population is low in vitamin D. And we're talking about magnesium, what was it, a third?
3: Forty-five
0: percent. Forty-five percent. These are big numbers. And they're cheap, all these things.
1: You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Today's guests are Dr. Bruce Ames and Dr. Rhonda Patrick.
2: With the micronutrients and the activity of DNA RNA, uh, talk about the effect there, the impact. Is there more to talk about there?
3: Absolutely. So there are many different micronutrients that are required for functions in your body that involve DNA replication, involve DNA repair, preventing DNA damage. These things are all very important because we're making 100 billion new cells every day. To make a new cell, we have to replicate the entire genome of that cell to make the daughter cell. And that requires a a whole host of enzymes. So... If you don't have enough magnesium for those DNA polymerase to work properly, what ends up happening is that their fidelity is lessened, meaning they don't work as well. And they're going to likely make more errors in that DNA replication that they're performing. And if they can't repair that error, then what ends up happening is that you can get a mutation. And depending on whether that mutation has any functional consequence, it's sort of random, But the more times this occurs, then the more chances you're having of getting a mutation that can, you know, something that's not good and can either cause cell death or can also be something that causes dysregulation of the way your genes are expressed. So it's very important to make sure you have the right cofactors, such as magnesium for DNA replication. Also, your mitochondria, your mitochondrial DNA, when you make new mitochondria, this is called mitochondrial biogenesis. It's, it's an important mechanism to boost the number of mitochondria per cell, and this can occur during things like exercise. Well, your mitochondria also have their own genome, and they have to replicate this genome. Well, guess what? Those mitochondrial DNA or polymerases also require magnesium. And so if there's not enough magnesium around, you're not making your mitochondria as optimal as you could be. And mitochondria play an important role in every single process in your body, including you know, neuronal function. So that's really important to make sure that your mitochondria are happy. Also, this is very relevant for things like aging. These micronutrients like vitamin D gets converted into a steroid hormone that regulates the expression of over 1,000 genes in your body. And some of those genes are involved in DNA repair and also in preventing DNA damage. So these micronutrients are extremely important for a variety of different physiological properties that are going on in your body every single day, things that you can't see when you look in the mirror. We're talking about something that's not an acute deficiency that's going to lead to a clinical symptom like scurvy.
0: We think bad nutrition is the main thing accelerating all these degenerative diseases of aging and contributing to these huge medical costs and all of that. And it's something you can do something about because they're all very cheap. Minerals
2: are dirt cheap. So the sourcing of the minerals and vitamins, it's not crucial at this point, you think?
0: I don't think so.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting them is the, the really the key factor, yeah. I
0: think. And I think to really reform people's diet, we're going to need the numbers. And we're working to try and show that there's some vulnerable protein that goes first when you're short of magnesium, and you should measure that. And then you'll know, ah, you're not getting enough, and all the consequences are you're disabling all your DNA repair enzymes or whatever.
3: It is ideal to try and get as many of these micronutrients, essential vitamins and minerals that you can from your diet. For example, I personally make a smoothie for breakfast every morning, which consists of kale, spinach, Swiss chard, carrots, tomato, avocado, berries, and I'm getting a broad spectrum of vegetables and fruits just from that one smoothie. And I think in addition to these essential vitamins and minerals that we know are in these various plants and fruits, I think there's also a lot of micronutrients in there that we have yet to discover that also may be doing important things. However, it's extremely difficult for people to get all of these micronutrients from their diet. And I think in that instance, supplementation can help fill those nutritional gaps. And we've actually shown that.
0: In general... People in nutrition don't like the idea of pills, but people are learning about all this. But you shouldn't overdo it. Mae West said too much of a good thing is wonderful, but she was thinking about sex, not micronutrients, (laughs) and particularly for minerals. In minerals, there's a sweet spot. Too much can hurt you and too little can hurt you.
2: And that's what you're hoping these next generation devices would help people understand where they are situated within the class of vitamins and minerals. What are they up in? What are they down in?
0: So there's maybe a decade's worth of science to do this, but we're trying to frame the ideas and say, look, this is where we're going. And it isn't drugs that are going to help you. It's getting your diet tuned up, your metabolism tuned up.
3: Your doctor can look at a few different micronutrients, and vitamin D is one test that they do. But there's a couple of companies that are out there right now, such as something called Wellness FX, where they're measuring a variety of different micronutrients in people's blood, including omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, magnesium, potassium, calcium. So they're looking at all these different vitamins and minerals, and people are quantifying It's called the quantified self-movement where people are getting their vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids measured. They're making dietary changes if they find out they're low in vitamin D or they're low in omega-3 or they have low magnesium. They're making dietary changes. And then about three months later, they go back and they quantify the levels again so they can physically measure and quantify this this change that they're making in their diet. And I think really that's the direction to go.
0: Yeah, and analytical methods are getting so wonderful that you can do it on a finger prick of blood. I have two entrepreneur scientist friends. One of them has put a machine in every hospital in China, and he measures a couple of dozen proteins of medical importance. And the Chinese are subsidizing because they think it's going to save money. And another friend of mine from Boulder, first one is Bill Rudd, the second one's Larry Gold, and he developed an alternative to monoclonal antibodies, and he can measure 1,500 different proteins in one finger prick of blood. I mean, it's fantastic, and he's working to get them all. Right now, it's a discovery system, but we're going to discover what protein tells you you're low in magnesium, or what protein tells you you're low in vitamin K, or what protein tells you you're low in paradoxical. And then it's all going to go to your iPhone And you'll get the diagnosis. We'll cut out the doctors because they don't know much about all this anyway, and they're too expensive. So it's not drugs you need for all of this. It's tuning up your metabolism. Oh, drugs are useful. I'm not saying they're not. And for some things, they're absolutely essential. But this area of getting your metabolism tuned up See, people are worried about a part per billion of pesticide, and it's all irrelevant. We, we published a hundred papers on that in that era, just saying, look, it's all a distraction from the important thing. And the important thing is all these bad diets we're eating, and obesity isn't just calories in, exercise out. Obese people are starving, and what they're starving for are vitamins and minerals because they're eating sugar and carbohydrate. And every possible disease of aging is accelerated in the obese, and plus huge costs, years of expensive diabetes and heart disease and cancer, you name it, it's been linked to obesity. So I think there's a big opportunity to tune people up.
1: Spectrum is a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. This is part one of a two part interview with Bruce Ames and Rhonda Patrick.
2: So Rhonda, the recent paper you published on vitamin D,
3: explain that. So vitamin D gets converted into a steroid hormone in your body, and the steroid hormone can regulate this expression of between 900 and 1,000 different genes. And the way it does that is that there's a little telltale sequence in your gene, and it's basically a six-nucleotide sequence repeat that's separated by three nucleotides. And this nucleotide sequence itself can determine whether or not vitamin D will turn on a gene or turn off a gene. And so vitamin D can do both of these where it turns on genes and turns off genes. Well, what we found is that there's two different genes that encode for tryptophan hydroxylase, which is the rate-limiting enzyme that converts tryptophan into serotonin. There's one that's in the brain called tryptophan hydroxylase 2, and there's one that's outside of the blood-brain barrier in tissues like mostly in your gut, also in your T cells, in your pineal gland, and in placenta tissue if you're a woman. And this is called tryptophan hydroxylase 1. And what we found is that both of these genes have what's called a vitamin D response element, that telltale sequence I was telling you about. However, they had completely opposite vitamin D response elements, one the one in your brain had an activation sequence to turn on. And the one in the gut had a repression sequence, the turn-off sequence, which suggested that vitamin D hormone was controlling the expression of these two different genes in opposite directions. Vitamin D is important to turn on tryptophan hydroxylase in two in your brain so you can make serotonin. And it's important to turn it off in your gut to blunt the production of serotonin in your gut. Serotonin in your gut, too much of it causes GI inflammation. This was a really cool finding because there was a recent paper where they found that autistic individuals... 90% of them had some abnormal tryptophan metabolism. And they didn't really identify what it was, but sort of like an aha moment where it was like tryptophan metabolism. Well, tryptophan, you need to make serotonin. And so I started doing some reading. And and sure enough, there's a whole literature connecting serotonin to autism. Serotonin is made in your brain. It's an important neurotransmitter. But during early, early brain development, it is a brain morphogen, meaning it actually is a growth factor that guides the neuronal proliferation, the development, the migration of neurons to different regions of the brain. It plays an essential role in shaping the structure and the wiring of the early developing brain. And so not having enough serotonin in early, early brain development in utero can lead to very aberrant brain morphological and functional consequences. You know, this was kind of like, wow, well, what if you're not getting enough vitamin D during that critical period, which is important to activate that gene that converts tryptophan into serotonin? Is it possible then that you wouldn't be making enough serotonin in that early brain and therefore you wouldn't have a normal brain development? Also, the serotonin in the gut can cause a lot of GI inflammation and also quite a few autistics have high GI inflammation. Also, they have high levels of serotonin in their blood. There's something that we call the serotonin anomaly, where they've measured brain levels of serotonin on autistics from fMRI, and they've also measured blood levels of serotonin. And there was sort of this weird dichotomy where autistics had high levels of serotonin in their blood, but they had low levels in their brain. And so it was like, well, why is that? Why would they have high levels in their blood low levels in the brain? And we think we found a mechanism why. If you're low in vitamin D, your vitamin D won't be turning on the one in your brain and you won't be making enough serotonin in your brain and it won't be repressing the one in your gut and you'll be making too much in your gut. It was sort of a, a really cool finding. We also, in our paper, discuss how estrogen can activate tryptophan hydroxylase 2 in the brain pretty much the same way vitamin D does. Estrogen so,
0: is also a steroid hormone and the sequences their receptors bind to are somewhat similar and in the Ronda dug out of the literature that people showed estrogen can turn on the messenger RNA for the brain enzyme making serotonin in girls, but it's not doing it in boys, which explains why five times as many boys get autism as girls. Anyway, she worked out all this mechanism and kept on explaining one thing after another. Rhonda would come in every week, hopping up and down, look what I found, and look what I found. And I think she walks on water, but she did this wonderful scholarship, which is a good metaphor, but she used to be a surfing instructor (laughs) when she was in San Diego.
3: It's pretty exciting. It was largely theoretical work where we did find a underlying mechanism to connect these dots. So we're hoping now that people in the field are going to continue on and look even deeper.
0: So what we think we know is how to prevent autism. But what we're not sure of is whether you can give vitamin D to people who have autism and help some of the symptoms. Because people need to do clinical trials on all this. And they haven't done them right. But now that we have the mechanism, you can do them right. The trouble is, drug companies, drug companies, aren't going to make money with vitamin D, and they know that, and so they're trying to develop a new drug, but we're hoping that these biochemicals, tryptophan and vitamin D and melatonin and omega-3s, which all seem to be involved, which you can find out by reading Rhonda's paper, that that is going to at least give a mechanism so we can do more focused clinical trials.
1: To learn more about the work Ames and Patrick are doing, visit their websites, bruceames.org and foundmyfitness.com.
0: Papers take a lot of polishing because we're going into all these fields that we don't know an awful lot about. Yes. And that requires a lot of double-checking and sending it to experts right. and getting criticism.
3: First, and, you have to learn yeah. everything, and then you have to put make the connections together, and then you have to write mm-hmm. it, and then so there's a whole process that's yeah. very... It's a lot of work personally, i my favorite part of it is the creative part where you just make all the connections and you find things and you start fitting things together, and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just it's almost yeah. like this awesome rush, but then once you make all those connections and you do that creative work, then you really have to do all the tedious hard yeah. digging and working due and, diligence, yeah. yes, and, and you, that it's not as much fun and, and
0: once you have a good theory, you soon know, is it explaining new things that you didn't expect, and right away this idea explains so many things. And it was all really lying on the ground and Randa just picked it up and put it together.
3: People like Bruce and I who like to make those connections, I think that we play an important role in science as well. This paper that we published recently, while we didn't physically do any experiments, we didn't test our theoretical work, we made a very interesting connection with a mechanism for other people to test. And I think that every once in a while... Science needs that because there's so much data out there, and now with Google, we have access to all this data. So I think that yeah. taking people that are familiar with the fields and can put things together like pieces of a puzzle, I think that also advances science in a very creative way. Yeah.
0: Biology is so complicated that there hasn't been that much room for people who just sit in their office and do theoretical work. <laughs> and we do a lot of experimental work in lab, and Rhonda's yeah. carrying on an experimental program while she's doing all this. But I like to get in between fields. I was always half a geneticist and half a biochemist. And it was wonderful because I saw all these problems, the geneticists turned up, and the biochemists didn't know existed, and the geneticists didn't know how to tackle. This was before Watson and Crick and all of that. Uh, I'm pretty old. Anyway, I think science is so competitive, but if you know two fields and there's an interface, you have a big advantage on everybody else. And... We like to have people in the lab with many different expertise and put things together.
1: You can tune into the rest of Brad's interview with Bruce Ames and Rhonda Patrick two weeks from now. A regular feature of Spectrum is a calendar of the science and technology-related events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. On Thursday, July 10th, the Bay Area Skeptics will host a free lecture by Glenn Branch, the Deputy Director of the National Center for Science Education. Branch will present untold stories from the SCOPES trial. If you thought that you knew everything about the SCOPES monkey trial, think again. To commemorate the 89th anniversary of this seminal episode in the long, contentious history of evolution education in the United States, Branch will tell the story of the Scopes Trial as it has never been told before, focusing on obscure, underappreciated, and amusing details. The event will be at the La Pena Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, and will start at 730 Please visit www.baskeptics.org for more info. And here's a news story we think you'll find interesting. In a paper published in Nature Neuroscience on June 8th, University of Minnesota researchers Adam B. Steiner and A. David Reddish report that they have made behavioral and neurophysiological observations of regret in rats. To regret is to recognize that taking an alternative action would have produced a more valued outcome than the action one took. The research team created a circular runway with four spokes and feeding machines at the end of each spoke that contained different flavors of food pellets. The feeding was preceded by a tone that indicated how long the rat would wait at a particular machine for food. If a rat left one of these restaurants with waiting time below its threshold, only to find an even longer waiting time at the next spoke, the team hypothesized that the rat may regret the choice. Indeed, the rats that fit this description were more likely than control rats to look toward the spoke they just left, and electrodes indicated that neurons in the orbital frontal cortex fired at the same time. Science News talked to Cold Spring Harbor neuroscientist Alex Vaughn about the paper. He said the researchers did a great job of designing a task that can discriminate between the regret of making a poor decision and the disappointment that results when one is punished despite making all the right choices. shows are archived on iTunes University. We have created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash Spectrum
0: Heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon.
3: Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to
0: us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at the same time.